If we cannot ever learn to defend ourselves from the attacks and temptations of Satan, then you will continually succumb to his temptations and you will never find true joy. Good evening, folks. That hymn that we were just singing or that was pre-recorded that we were being sung was actually a precursor to my message tonight. And it's a topic of rejoicing all way. And if you could turn with me to Act 16. Act 16, and though we'll only be reading one verse, it's the passage is from 16 to 25. And many of you know this story, and to me, it's one of the, the most exciting stories in the book of Acts. And we'll just read one verse together, and it kind of cuts to the chase and goes to the climax of the story. Verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 25. Acts 16, verse 25, let's read it together. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And let's just turn to one other book, Philippians. Philippians 4, and as you've guessed it, Philippians 4, verse 4. Which says, Rejoice in the Lord alway, and again I say, Rejoice. Something that bothers me quite often is are Christians who, who preach the word of God, who preach about the goodness of God, but they walk around with a mopey face, if you know what that means. They, they walk around sad and they walk around like they've been defeated in life. Though a Christian who's realized how good God is, they should be walking a victorious life, an upright life, a life that beams joy and beams happiness, but... Why is it that so many are not glad? Many can't say that they're glad and joyful. Why is that? And that verse that we read in Acts, and at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Without any context, that verse may seem inconsequential and useless. But if you just go back a couple of verses, you could understand the significance of the act of Paul and Silas. As many of you all know, or most of you know the story of this chapter, Paul and Silas were ministering in the city of Philippi. They were ministering to a certain damsel that was possessed by an evil spirit. That was part of their ministry. And because of Paul and Silas's ministry to this damsel, her masters became mad and caused Paul and Silas to be thrown into jail and to just suffer for, no, for absolutely no reason. They had done nothing, they were wrongly accused and unjustly thrown into shackles. They were stripped of their clothing. They were beaten with many stripes. And I've heard some people say that whips aren't too bad. But if you've never seen how hard a whip gets cracked, just search it up on YouTube after this message. The whips were no joke. Was, they were beaten with many stripes. They were thrown into a dirty dungeon, feet bound between two pieces of wood. For what? For ministering. Suffice it to say, the condition and situation of Paul and Silas were less than ideal. And many of you have heard sermons that were preaching on this topic. And though Paul and Silas suffered persecution, suffered shame, and though they were treated unjustly and, and poorly by these people, they managed to do the one thing that many Christians fail to do in much better circumstances. 
They rejoiced, they worshipped, and gave praise to God, even though their situation didn't warrant it. Now, Paul was a man of joy. That's why he was able to write and coin that verse in Philippians. He himself can say, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and he has evidence that in his personal ministry, he was a man of joy, no matter the situation, no matter what troubles he experienced, no matter the shame he received from other men, he was always found to be joyful. Now, another man that I look up to is Charles Spurgeon. He was another great man of God who had a great ministry. And though he faced many difficulties in his ministry, he, he suffered gouts and multiple health complications throughout his lifetime. Though he had a lot of suffering and he was fit for bouts of depression, when other Christians were in his presence, they said that he was one of the most joyful men to be around. He was filled with humor. He cracked jokes left and right. And I'm not saying that cracking jokes makes you the most joyful person, but it was just uh, that his Humor, the, the reason why he gave out so much humor was because he was so joyful no matter what was happening in his own life. He was so joyful because of his relationship with the Lord. Now, having joy at all times, it honestly may seem like an impossibility. But it can become reality when we realize a certain principle, and that is to find joy in God. That is to find our joy in God and not in anything else. When you are faced with an unsuitable condition, conditions which may cause you grief, sorrow, anger, discouragement, and fear, answer yourself this, how would you react? Now, there are really only two ways to react to un, uh, less than ideal situations. One, is to react to them according to what the Bible has taught us, pleasing God in the process. Or two, to detract from the teachings of scriptures, allowing the flesh to take center stage, becoming no different from the world, and letting Satan win over you. And many times we're, we are in that latter group. We let Satan have the last laugh when we react to uh, less than ideal situations. So that today's sermon is handling the question, what does the Bible teach us about rejoicing? And before we can understand and experience true joy, we must understand three important principles. But before that, let us just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would enable and empower me to preach your word and yours, your word alone. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to my heart and to the hearts of those listening. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. So the first principle that needs to be established is to know what we are. We first need to understand what we are. The first thing we are are lowly sinners. We're not some grand royalty. We are lowly sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, for there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Ever since the fall of man, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, the sin nature has been passed down from succeeding generation. Not one man conceived since Adam, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is born sinless and without blame. Like the prophet Isaiah said, all our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. We can present our very, very, very best to God, but in His sight, it is still 
not enough. And Luke realized this, and in 17.10, he said, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Even if we serve God, that is just our duty. That was what was expected from us. We are merely sinners. And how does this tie in with joy? How does this tie in with finding joy? Because when you realize that you are a mere sinner, you realize that you are deserving of everything that might come through your life. You would become a better recipient of trials and and different uh, less than ideal situations if you know that you are just a lowly sinner. But not only are we lowly sinners, we are sinners saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There are some who find pride in their salvation, and they learn to boast about what God has given to them. But the truth is, nothing we own, nothing we inherited, are things that we had to work for. They were given to us by grace, by God. Our blessings and our salvation are not things in which we did anything for to work up to get those things. It was the grace of God that supplied us with everything. We are lowly sinners, undeserving of receiving anything good. But it is through the grace of God that we can enjoy those things. Now you might say, this is a very depressing topic that we're here, that we're talking about. That we're, I'm just a lowly sinner. But this is important for experiencing true joy. We cannot ever obtain true biblical joy if you do not first learn how to act in humility. If you do not have a proper view of yourself and you hold yourself higher than what you actually are and you think you're some sort of royalty, uh, like some sort of king and we're all peasants, if you have a high regard for yourself, you will always react negatively to bad situations. No matter how minor they are and no matter how trivial they are, if you hold yourself to a high regard and you think you're very entitled to everything, you will always react negatively, no matter how bad, no matter how small the inconvenience may be. It is like a peasant who feels that they deserve the treatment of a king. We are sinners who deserve to be treated like lowly sinners, and we are deserving of what a sinner deserves. We are not some holy being that deserve, that is entitled to all these blessings. We are only entitled to those things because of Christ's righteousness placed into our account. We ourselves, in our own nature, are sinners and lowly sinners at that. And once you begin to start acting in true humility, you can start seeing your trials in a different lens. Now, you won't, you'll stop seeing trials as, uh, as mere inconveniences or things that will just, are just there to ruin your day. You'll see them as a, as a source of, uh, as an experience that will help build you up, that will help build your character. Instead of feeling bad for yourself, you realize that this is your due reward, that this is your due diligence. As a Christian once said, a humble person is not one who thinks little of himself. Because a lot of times those people are, are acting out in a, a false sense of pity. A humble person is not one who thinks little of himself, hangs his head and says, I am nothing. 
Rather, he is one who depends wholly on the Lord for everything in every circumstance. That is true humility. When you have no uh, self, you don't, you don't try to self-sustain yourself, but you find all of your sustenance through God. So first principle is to know what we are, and that is we are lowly sinners. Sinners saved by grace. But the second principle that we must understand is why our enemy attacks. Why our enemy attacks. And turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, chapter 8. We'll read it a, a bit later. Now, difficult situations could either be testing and trials from God or a direct attack from Satan or his minions, for lack of a better word. Now, testing and trials from God are, are for our for our benefit, to build our character. But attacks from Satan are very dangerous because he is the one who tries to seek and rob us of our joy. And many times we allow him. And that's right, it's the key word there is allow. We have a choice whether we allow Satan to have the victory and we have the choice to shut him out and let God have the glory. We have a choice in whatever situation that we are put in, we have a choice to glorify God or uh, uplift Satan's schemes. The devil has a central goal of getting vengeance. That is, his, that is his burning desires to get vengeance on God. God has cast him down because he lifted himself up and he now seeks revenge. But the fact is, is he is too powerless to do anything against God. He can't do anything directly to God because he will lose. And he will lose. We already know what will happen to Satan in the end. But God is much more powerful than Satan will ever be. So what's the next best, best thing? Well, if Satan can't directly attack God, he's going to direct his attack on those that God loves, his children, us. And his wish for you and me, Satan, is not for our benefit, is not for, our, for us to have pleasure in life, but it is to destroy each and every one of us. To destroy each and every single one of the believers. And he's doing a pretty good job, I might add. He's led many astray. He has relentlessly pursued the destruction of Christians, and he's been at work since the time of Christ and before, him, before Christ's incarnation. Now let's read 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, though God is more powerful than Satan, Satan is much more powerful compared to us, and he's much more intelligent to add. He was the one who was the perpetrator for the fall of man. He was the one who tempted Eve, and Eve would tempt Adam to eat of the fruit. He caused great men of the Bible to have stained reputations. He caused Cain to kill Abel. He caused Noah to shame himself by drinking himself drunk. He caused Moses to commit murder. And he caused David to have an affair and indirectly murder one of his generals. He caused many a great men to destroy themselves and to have a, a moment of self-destruction. The reason why is he knows the weaknesses of each man and woman. Not because he's some omniscient being, but he's just observed us. All this time he's been observing us and all of his forces have been observing us and they know our weaknesses and they know each of our breaking points and you know in matter of fact he knows our weaknesses 
much more than we know our weaknesses. Sometimes there's an area in our life that we don't even, that we think is a very innocent area, but he knows that that is his gateway for getting you to sin. So he might be backing off and say, how could we ever fight such a powerful enemy, such as Satan? Well, I can tell you this right now. It is definitely not by our own might. We could try and run away and hide from the devil, but he can still get us. We could equip ourselves with a bunch of uh, useless self-help motivational hype. That's not going to help against Satan. The only way against Satan is to quote scripture like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. He quoted scripture and that was his defense to ward off Satan's temptation. That is the only way that we can fight temptation is through the power of his word. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If we cannot ever learn to defend ourselves from the attacks and temptations of Satan, then you will continually succumb to his temptations and you will never find true joy. Because when you fall into the temptation of Satan, what follows is a life of licentious living, is a life of immorality, is a life of sin. I don't know if this is a surprise to you, but if you look at the lives of immoral people and licentious livers, a lot of them, if you look at their their inward condition, most of them are depressed. Most of them don't even want to be in this world anymore because of how heavy their heart feels. Drinking yourself drunk every night getting yourself high every single night, sleeping with random people, those things only provide temporary amounts of pleasure. But the moment that high wears off, guess what? Those people are depressed out of their mind. And oftentimes they say that they can't bear this life any longer. You might please the flesh, you might have temporary pleasure, but that is not true joy. That is what the world tries to call and and label as joy. But that is not true joy. There was a poem that said, Satan promises the best, but he pays with the worst. He promises honor, and he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure, and pays with pain. He promises profit, and he pays with loss. He promises life, and he pays with death. The master of deception. Many Christians are depressed, not because God has forsaken them. To say that God has forsaken you is a blatant lie. He already promised in, his, in the Bible that He will never leave us nor forsake us. So we are not depressed because God has forsaken us, not because God has wronged us, but many times Christians fall into depression and lack joy because they themselves are in sin. Because they're the ones who have fallen into sin, now they're reaping the effects of sin, which is a lack of joy and filled with depression. If I look at the key areas of my life where I, lacked, where I was devoid of joy, those were the same exact days where I was just living immorally, or I was living not according to the will of God. There's a direct correlation between being depressed and living a life of sin. I'm not saying all the time that's the case, because you can't level uh, that same accusation towards David Brainerd who spent all of his life ministering, but he had bouts of depression regardless. 
But so it's not always the case, but there is a direct correlation between living an immoral life and being depressed and not having joy. So do not let Satan rob you of your joy. Do not let him get a stronghold in your heart. And a lot of times we allow him to have a stronghold in each of our hearts, whatever our weakness may be. Joy can only be experienced when we stop letting Satan rule over our lives. So that was the second principle. First principle, understand that you are a lowly sinner and that you need to humble yourself and have a proper perspective of who you are. And second is to understand who is attacking us and why the Satan is attacking us. And once you can ward off the main reason for why we have no joy, once you can start warding off the devil, you are a step closer to having continual joy in your life. Now, this is the most uplifting part of the sermon. Now, what we are and why Satan attacks us, that can be a bit dampening to, in terms of our spirit. But this third point is uplifting. We have to remember who we serve. Most importantly, more importantly than the two first points I mentioned of who we are and why the devil attacks, we have to remember who we serve. This is the most vital step of living a life filled with joy. And is realizing who the true source of that joy is. We can try and boast ourselves up and try to hype ourselves up to becoming happy, but that won't bring about joy. We could give in to temptation, but that brings pleasure to our flesh, which is a paltry imitation of what true joy is. True joy is not short-lived. Joy is not something that lasts five to ten minutes. Joy is something that just exudes out of you 24 hours a day. So if you want to understand true joy, go to God himself. Go to God yourself and talk to him and receive true joy. Joy in who he is and what he has done for us, what he does for us and what he continues to do for us for the entirety of our lives. Past, present, and future, no matter the time frame, we will always find a way to rejoice in God. First thing, he's our comforter. John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Out of the three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the one who is often neglected. And I wrote this sermon at a time that I was just starting my study on the, the character of the Holy Spirit. And I myself completely neglected his ministry for the longest time. For, most of, for the majority of my Christian life, I didn't even really focus on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, one of his ministries is to comfort us. Many people pray that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. But again, that's something that they just add into their Christian vernacular, vocabulary. They don't really know what that means. Neither do they really desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is what allows us to live a Christ-like life and to not, and to not stray or depart from that life. The key is being filled with the Spirit. And that is something that we need to pray for every single day. Being Spirit-filled should result in reaping the fruit of the Spirit. And two of those graces that are included in the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering and joy. You won't get long-suffering and joy if you're not filled with the Spirit. If you're truly indwelt, and you're always continually asking for the filling of the Holy Spirit, you will have true joy. But one who is living life dependent on himself and himself alone, he's trying to do everything in his own power 
with his own logic, with his own skill sets, that person will likely not be joyful in his sufferings. Because he did everything on his own, he will also go through pain on his own. But a person who does his work through God will also go through his pain and sufferings with God. Don't worry. If you are saved today, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. This is not a what-if scenario, or maybe I have him, maybe I don't. This is not a Pentecostal thing where you have to be given the Holy Spirit, like some sort of force. The moment you were saved, the moment you accepted Christ into your life, the Holy Spirit also simultaneously indwelt your heart. And I'm glad that we have him, because without him, we would have to rely on ourselves and how, on our frail humanity, on our frail skill sets. Rely on the Holy Spirit. God is also our Savior. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this, if this doesn't cause you any joy anymore, there might be something wrong with your spiritual walk with God. Because whenever you're lacking joy, at least for me, think on what Christ has done for you on the cross. This coming Sunday, we'll be having Resurrection Sunday. And that, just that whole day should just fill us with utmost joy about what Christ has done for us on that hill. You were given the gift of eternal life. Yet you let these minor inconveniences destroy your whole day. You were given salvation from hellfire and brimstone from, for the entirety of eternity. But yet you let that person who cut you off while you're driving ruin your entire week and make you sin by cursing or whatever else you decide to do. Or you let those cash register or whoever is dealing with your groceries, they get your price wrong or something or they overcharge you and you let that ruin your entire day. If the moment you, you're struggling to find joy in your life, maybe during these times of pandemic, you just, you just hate this because it's, it's so far from what your normal life was like. In these times that you, are, uh, you have no joy, just think on the cross. Just think on what Christ did for you. He suffered so that we might not suffer. And many times we're the ones allowing ourselves to suffer for so long. If we just give our burdens to God, our suffering could end. I was reading a book uh, earlier, and the, um, it, was a, it was about a Holocaust survivor. And she had the unfortunate thing of being a twin. And there was this guy named Joseph Mengel. I'm not, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly. But he, his thing was, he was always experimenting on every single twin. He asked for every single pair of twins to come to his office or whatever. And he would do inhumane things to these twins. Inhumane things to this twin. And so, logically speaking, you could understand why this girl would have so much hate and bitterness for this mad scientist. Who, let me add to that, this mad scientist was never killed. He just died peacefully in a pool. Oh, I don't know if it was peaceful, but he just died. He was never caught. And a, life, a, guy, like, a guy as dastardly as him got away with a relatively peaceful life. And so this woman was filled with bitterness. And it was just such a, it was just a robber of joy for her. But the moment that she forgave him in her heart, she, in her own words, said, 
that she just felt like her burdens rolled away. This huge stone that was upon her back was finally gone the moment he forgave that scientist. And similarly, the, the reason why we suffer for so long and we are so filled with, with just bitterness in our hearts is because we are choosing ourselves to suffer. If we can only just give that burden to God, we will be free of all of that pain and suffering. Look unto Christ and rejoice in the salvation that he gave us. And the last thing, he is, he is our comforter, he is our savior, but most of all, he is our father. Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. As a kid, I didn't understand why my dad had to palo me, or like, whip, not whip me, sorry, wrong word. He wasn't whipping me with <laughs> a belt, all right, disciplining me. Okay, my dad was not using whips. But I didn't understand why my dad had to discipline me with a belt. Why couldn't he just do it with like, with flowery words or something? And I never understood that. And my dad always, before he disciplined me, he would always say, this hurts me more than this hurts you. And I always doubted those words because at the time, I'm, su- I'm the one suffering. I'm the one getting hurt. And, but looking back at it, I understand why it hurts him more than it hurts me. Because if you put yourself in your father's perspective, you would never want to hurt your child physically. Pastor Silver was just, he, we were talking about this uh, serial killer, not serial killer, but he was a man um, who killed his wife and his three children, one of which was still in the womb. And I was saying, in my mind, I was thinking, how could a person ever lay a hand on their child, let alone kill them? And it is very difficult to lay your hand on your child or to hurt them in a way that will cause them pain. But disciplinary action is important for children to put them and correct them and put them into the right path. I believe in disciplining your child. And sometimes the trials that God puts in our life, they're very painful. They're very painful, but they are used to correct us and to put us back on the right path. Because he is a good father. He's a heavenly father. Just as, how, just as how my dad loves me and took care of me all my life, we have an even greater father in heaven. A perfect father. No father would ever claim that they are perfect. The only one who could claim that and, actually, and it actually be true is the heavenly father. He's not just the father to me. He's not just the father to the pastors. He's a father to every believer. There's a song, I forgot, forget who sang it, but he loves me like I was his only child. He loves us all equally. Those who, are, who have fell off the way and those who are still faithfully serving him, he loves them. He loves both of those equally. Our sufferings are sometimes the corrections of our Heavenly Father, which is the result of his love. Throughout all of the trials and tribulations that he gives us, there will never be a moment when God will leave or depart from you. He watches over all of our lives. Now, there's a poem that Pastor White has, I think, said twice before, maybe more, but I've only recalled it twice. But it's a poem called Footprints in the Sand. And it reads, One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of of footprints in the sand. 
One belonged to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why when I needed you most, you would leave me. And the Lord replied, My precious, precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. We often deceive ourselves thinking that God has just run away from us and that God has left us alone to suffer. But it is often us that take ourselves and we seclude ourselves and isolate ourselves and try to block God. And that's why we feel that level of isolation, that sense of isolation. There's a song that I really love and it's called, God Wants to Hear You Sing. And these are the lyrics. He loves to hear our praise on our cheerful days when the pleasant times outweigh the bad by far. But when suffering comes along and we still sing him song, that is when we bless the Father's heart. God wants to hear you sing when the waves are crashing around you, when the fiery darts surround you, when despair is all you see. God wants to hear your voice even when the wisest man has spoken and says your circumstance is as hopeless as can be. That's when God wants to hear you sing. The moment we understand and then realize that we are just lowly sinners, that the true source of, of the, the reason why we don't have a joy is because of Satan's temptations. Once we learn to defend from Satan and his temptations, and once we realize who we are, who we are serving, once we realize these three principles, and apply them. That's the most important part. And it's not just knowing them, but applying them and understanding them. Once you have these three principles down, you're much, much closer to just living a life filled with joy, no matter what circumstances may come. Philippians 4.4 will always be some sort of vague, uh, will always be far out of our reach unless we realize these three things. But once we do have these three things and apply them, Philippians 4 will become a reality. And we too will be able to rejoice in God always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this message that you have given me. I pray, Lord, that it would have been received by those watching. And I pray, Lord, that the truth of it, of that we should be joyful, that, that that can only be possible if we rely on you and deny ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to have a better relationship with you every single day and to grow in our relationship with you. Because only when we find our sufficiency in you can we ever really obtain true joy. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless the remainder of the evening uh, midweek service. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.